0: Bringing you a little bit of a different episode this week of the Future of Agriculture podcast. I have been working on a project uh, that is another podcast called Soil Sense. This has been a podcast that I am hosting on behalf of uh, North Dakota State University Extension. It's a podcast where we're going to profile farmers, consultants, researchers, and extension, all working together to build soil health building practices. It's a really fantastic story in North Dakota of what's happening Up there and gives some really realistic viewpoints into what it actually looks like to build soil health. I'm sure you've heard a ton of buzz out there about uh, everything from carbon sequestration to soil organic matter uh, and the importance of soil health. And it's certainly all founded on truth, but there's also a lot of overhype. So we're getting very real with uh, the stories of what's actually happening out there on the farm uh, to help make our soil health building practices more effective uh, for this year's production and for many years to come. So I thought I would just give you one of the episodes. Uh, I took it directly from the Soil Sense podcast and uh, have played it for you here today. I hope you enjoy. If you heard any of our stories from the Soil series we did last year with Cool Planet, this actually kind of came a little bit from that series. So if you enjoyed that, you're going to definitely enjoy this. And you can go to any podcast player and subscribe to Soil Sense the same way you're likely subscribed to this episode. So anyway, I'll get out of the way. Here is one of the episodes. This is actually episode three of the Soil. Sense podcast. Enjoy. This is the Soil Sense podcast, where we believe that building healthier soils is not just a prescription, but rather a pursuit. It's a journey that requires collaboration, curiosity, and communication among farmers, researchers, consultants, and extension agents. In this series, you're going to hear their stories and discover how and why they're working together to make sense out of what's happening in the soil. glad you're joining us for this episode of soil sense this podcast series dives deep into various aspects of soil health from the perspectives of farmers researchers consultants and extension agents today's episode captures a very special interview i was able to do with a renowned soil scientist dr dave franson and a forward-thinking farmer he has collaborated with for many years anthony tilmoney there were so many insights from this interview i actually decided to to divide it up into two separate episodes today, which we'll be discussing soil fertility, and then the next one, which is going to go more into zone sampling and precision ag techniques. In many senses, though, soil health is all about soil fertility. We want to build healthy soils so that they remain fertile or productive long term. If you listen to this full episode, you're going to get a much better understanding of soil fertility from both a scientific and a practical perspective. Anthony Tillmoney is a fourth generation farmer in the Valley City, North Dakota area. He has a master's in weed science and has worked in both research and sales before returning to the farm full time, where he's been farming for a little over 20 years. Dr. Dave Franson is a soil scientist with North Dakota State University in Extension. Uh, when he moved to North Dakota from Illinois, he specialized in site-specific nutrient management and grid sampling. He began working with Anthony's dad, Lloyd, in the mid-1990s. Dr. Franson really puts all of this work in soil health into perspective with this brief history of fertilization in North Dakota.
1: I got a call a half a dozen years ago from the North Dakota Historical Society. And they were at a conference in Bismarck, the Governor's Conference on um, the Governor's Historical Society. So uh, they asked me if I could uh, give a presentation at their conference on the history of fertilization in North Dakota. So I heard the word governor and I said yes. And then I hung up the phone and was like, what did you just do? You're going to talk about 45 minutes. Showing a chart of n p k used from about nineteen fifty to the present, I was like that's uh a minute and a half, two minutes if you speak really slowly but then i I started um thinking, and I'd heard about um uh the settlers picking up buffalo bones when they came came here in the state, and so I researched that and uh and and found uh, some really good source of information but it was a it was a general uh way that settlers when they came here uh, made enough money not to starve to death those first couple years was picking up buffalo bones off the field and then taking them to a wagon to Enderlin or devil's lake or some terminal railway terminal and they could get as much as I think the highest figure was twenty bucks a ton. Um, normally five to ten, but even that was big money back in 1880. Uh, and so, you know, I figured about how much phosphate that would be in a couple of years at phosphate at today's rates of application. And uh, then I thought, well, that's cool. That'll take up 15 minutes. And um, then I started thinking about the dust blowing, and I I thought, you know, there's a lot of fertilizer in that. So then I started researching that, and holy cow. I mean, the amount of soil we lost in the state is just astronomical. You know, the the old 1900 to 1905 soil surveys talk about, you know, just east of here. You went past it on your way. You go by the Wheatland exit, for example, there's a Wheatland soil, and there's lots of Wheatland soils in that area, right? Today, they're around 2% organic matter uh, with the dark area maybe about 6 inches deep. In 1903, the Cass County Soil Survey described those as having two feet of 6.8% organic matter, and it's all gone, all of it. And, um, you know, over the state, we've lost, you know, anywhere from a foot to two feet soil over everywhere, and in some places it's still going on. And so it just, it was like a shock to the system. And so I made that presentation and I've given it and advancements of it over the last four or five years. And um, in order to get somebody to change the way they're doing things, you either have to have an economic tag or an emotional tag. And I tie it in with phosphate export. The The title of the talk is History of Phosphate Export in North Dakota. And I start out with buffalo bones. But then the amount of phosphate in the soil that blew away it just blows away the buffalo bones is just huge so um so that gets people at both emotional and the economic level because most people have no idea that they're ever had that much soil to begin with and when they go in and till the field they look back in the, back the tractor it still looks black to them you know as far as they know it's the same as it was in 1880 but it's not so um so that's when I really started. So I I consider myself the shock troops of the soil health team. <laughs> they, I get their attention, and then they, they show them the way forward. So I think that's how we work
0: together. Well, Dr. Franson has definitely got the attention of many farmers, including Anthony Tilmoni, a fourth-generation farmer who brings not only the farmer perspective, but also that of a former researcher and salesperson.
2: When I was getting done with school, Dad wasn't ready to retire, and there was no land available. So I happened to apply for the agronomist job at the experiment station, and lo and behold, I got it. And so I worked in my not basically four seasons, uh, quit that, and then I worked for American Cyanamid for four years as a sales rep, and then Dad was ready to retire. So then I came home and started farming so uh, i tell people i have a diverse background because i've worked research sales and production yeah. <laughs> so i i've seen a lot of sides of this ball game i don't know that the sales side helped me a lot except for again i met a lot of people i worked the western half in north dakota our farm started no-tilling in the in the mid 80s and no-till is a lot more prevalent in western part of north dakota so I have contacts and people that I've learned and talked with out there. You can't necessarily draw everything from what they say because we're a different environment, but it, it gives you a starting point. And when I started farming, I, dad was no-till, on and off, sunflowers, we couldn't completely go. But when I came in, some herbicides come available and things changed and it just kind of switched over. that. The common joke is my chisel plow shovels should last me till retirement age. Because <laughs> about the only thing I use them for is, whoops, I got stuck and I got to work a spot out or I clean a tree roll or something like that. I mean, I don't work fields anymore. <laughs> I don't do tillage. So uh, that that's kind of my background and, and where I come from. I suppose the salesman, I, I'd look at economics a lot more yep. probably than other people. And then, of course, with my background, I also understand generic herbicides so I do a lot of digging and pick and choose products out that's probably helped me a lot that way so
0: Anthony and other farmers repeatedly offer up some of their farm for researchers like Dr. Franson to conduct their research actually on a farm and ask Dr. Franson what's so important uh, about doing this rather than maybe just using other university resources for trials
1: when you do, if we went to Castleton, for example, you know, which is an NDSU study, or Prosper, or any of the stations, you know, might not? You don't know for sure what the fertility was before that. I mean, if I was a weed scientist, it would be okay to work on those farms because there, there's, uh, but uh, but but the fertility, the, the small scale variability could be huge, and you don't know what it was like. Uh, a while back and and so I just like to do on commercial farms um, and I like lots of sites and uh, and so you're limited by the number of NDSU farms and what you could really do but the second one is not so much professional as it is uh, I spent 18 years in the fertilizer business and I remember going down to the down to the South Farms in Urbana and going through the tour and thinking to myself yeah okay it works here but you know our farms up north are different and but if you work on farmers fields it's farmers fields and and so I think psychologically uh, it means more to farmers when you do the studies on farmers fields than you do an experiment station Um, so there are places where the experiment station is, is really, really good. All the breeding efforts, some of the weed control studies, but fertility I think you got to get out of there. You know, I think you need to get someplace where you have a better chance of having things more uniform and there's not some odd thing that happened, you know, five years ago that's going to affect your study.
2: I always thought you liked like to work here because you could be on sand and step two feet over and be in clay. Well, that helps
1: too, yeah. <laughs> you know, if you, if there I don't I don't think we have we don't. I don't think we have one experiment farm that has any any sand on it. The closest to that is, is up at Carrington, but that's um, just kind of a light loam. It's not really a sandy loam. So yeah, I have a diverse number of areas around here. And again, it's 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 no till and there's a few more no till fields around than there used to be in the east, but uh, but this has been no till for a long time and long term no till performs different than something that's just been a no-till for a few years. The biology is fully developed where the the fields have only been a no-till for a few years. It's just starting to get that way.
2: Well, a prime example, I I work with a neighbor just over a little bit. We share resources and work together. He was watching me plant my soybeans no-till with the 1890 into the corn stalks. He couldn't find any seeds on top of the ground. Everything was good. I got done, he said, well, I'm going to go plant my cornfield. An hour later, the air cedar's back in the yard, and he said, I can't get it to go in the ground. I said, what do you mean you can't get it to go in the ground? That thing will plant into pavement. His ground was so hard, he threw a match, burned it, and went out with the field cultivator and worked it to plant his beans. And we're only two miles apart, but the history difference of the way the farming is done. He still, every time he watches me plant, he says, I can't believe what you can do. <laughs> It just it works and the original no-till soil health all of that stuff none of that was ever talked about that wasn't what drove it moisture conservation is what drove it we were in very dry years the 70s 80s Uh, you wanted to save every drop of moisture you can for production so he switched to no-till starting with winter wheat into wheat stubble you know that type of thing and worked through it over the years and just kind of expanded and between him and I, we basically expanded based on technology. As equipment become available, technology come that we could do more and more. We've expanded further to the point, the only tillage I do is my anhydrous application. 15-inch spacing with a knife. And if I could figure out a way to buy a disc opener to put anhydrous down, I would do that, but I can't find one. Not cost-effectively, anyway. To me, no-till is a concept and, and it's a history in time. Uh, just one year of seeding direct. Some guys, for example, beans. They'll seed beans no-till into wheat stubble, and then uh, then they'll work it after that. That's not no-till. That's just direct seeding, and you don't get any of the benefits. You get all the headaches, as far as I can see. You know, where if you leave it multiple years, the earthworms, the biology, things go on. Uh, another story that I told Dr. Franson one time I had a neighbor was after me and he said, I don't understand it. You go out and anhydrous your corn stalks for my sunflowers the next year, 15-inch space tooth, and your field blackens off. I go out with a disc, ripper chisel, and I work it twice, and I can't make it as black as your field. And I said, yeah, because you've killed all your earthworms over time and nothing's out there eating anything. Me, it disappears on its own, you know. Um to me, that's the, the no-till. Dr. Wick has hear, heard me say this. Dr. has heard me say this. No-till is not a suicide pact, as far as I can see. It's a concept. It's an idea. It's what I strive for. Does that mean I absolutely never do tillage? No. There are times you put ruts in the field or you do something like that. You've got you to gotta deal with things. You know. Do I want to work anything? No. The idea is not. I do have to admit, though, it's really tough in the spring when the guys are planting black fields and the nice green wheat comes up and you're looking at my residue fields and the stand is still there. It just doesn't look as pretty. I'm getting used to it, but it's tough.
0: Well, despite Anthony's fields not looking as pretty, as he says, uh, there is no denying the benefits he has seen from these soil health practices over time. I think it's an interesting point that he brings up about someone who tries no-till once and then abandons it, didn't really do no-till, they did direct seeding. And I wondered, where is the difference between just direct seeding and actually getting into the benefits of no-till? When might you see the difference?
1: I, uh, and, and this I just kind of pluck off the back of my head, uh, is it, to me, the biology and everything, it takes about six years or so to change, you know, by the sixth year, in some of the clay soils, it doesn't take that long, maybe four, four years or so that I had some no-till plots just west of the greenhouses on campus, uh, one of my few station studies. And, um it had really changed after about 4 years. In in other in other uh, more loamy uh, soils it'd it take about 6 years. When you start seeing a lot of beetles, when you start to see that residue disappear, uh, where you know you you go out in the, the fall and there's residue there and then you go out in the spring to plant and and the rows are just clean and you know you you you're there.
0: In addition to seeing these cleaner fields as a result of the biological activity, farmers were noticing that through this long-term no-till, they were actually needing less nitrogen. This caught Dr. Franson's attention, and he's done a lot of work on establishing a nitrogen credit as a result of long-term no-till.
1: Well, that that came from the 1995 zero-till conference out in Minot. And it was the coldest. I woke up the next morning. I remember it for two reasons. One is that coldest day I've ever woke up in North Dakota. It was uh, 40 some degrees below zero and that's not wind chill and thank goodness I had my car plugged in and I had to go to Amadon the next morning. And uh, so I remember because of that but I also got to meet uh, a lot of the original no-tillers in in North Dakota. Uh, I know uh, Ken Mogan was there from Charleston. Um, Mike Zook was there. Uh, there were several other the quote-unquote Beach Boys that were there. You know they called them Beach Boys, and um, and so uh, we had a nice conversation. And, and during it, they 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 were happy to see me because the position had been open for a couple of years. And but they also said that they didn't follow NDSU fertilizer recommendations anymore. And that surprised me. So I asked them why. And they said that after they'd been in no-till for several years, they found they could start shaving their nitrogen rates back, and they'd shaved them off so much, some of them had been in it 20 years, that um, it, you know, it didn't resemble the recommendations at all, so they just never paid any attention to them anymore. So I just put it in my back pocket. And when 2010 came along, and I had well over 100 site years of wheat data from around the state, I remembered the conversation. And I... I'd kept track of what was conventional till and what was long-term no-till, and so I divided it out, and I'll be darned if they weren't right, that it took about 50 pounds less nitrogen to grow at least the same crop and at least the same protein uh, with no-till as it did with conventional till, so that um, it's part of the recommendation, and then that's one of the reasons that uh, I I select both conventional till and no-till for our corn work and for the For the sunflower work that we've done since then and uh, they both showed the same thing so so it's a real deal and um, just lately you know we've we found uh, at least one reason why that's happening and um, before a few years ago well really before last year my explanation was is that there's far more organisms microorganisms and a greater range. You know, you got the worms and the beetles, you got things that chew, and then you got little things and helpful nematodes, all, a whole suite of things. You have, so you have a wider range of things that are alive in the soil in a long term no till field, and you have more of them. So, in microorganisms anyway, it, um, their population is limited by nitrogen just like a crop is. So when you put nitrogen fertilizer on it, where nit- nitrogen is released from the soil, they take up some too. And uh, so my thought was that, especially in the wet years, that it increased our efficiency of our nitrogen uh, as opposed to the conventional till where you just have a small number of, of organisms in the field, enough to burn up the residue, but they don't do a whole lot more than that. But then... Uh, somebody in the audience about three years ago asked well what about what about free living nitrogen fixers you know the nitrogen fixing bacteria he was he meant nitrogen fixing bacteria that that aren't symbiotic like those that live on a soybean or a pea or alfalfa they're just alive in the soil and i and i'd read the literature and in my uh, recollection and it's correct is that it's it's always a background they're in all of our soils but uh their activity is maybe five pounds per acre per year. And so it's kind of the background. It's one of the reasons why if you go into any field and don't put any nitrogen on, you don't get zero yield. There's always something, right? So um, it's part of the background. But then I got to thinking that that their activity is probably limited by food and housing. So... Uh, these little microorganisms, they like these little cubby holes to live in and uh, propagate in and sustain themselves, you know, year after year their progeny. And so, and they need something to eat, too. And and so in long-term no-till, there's both. You know, you're not destroying their house four or five times a year. And uh, there's a wide range of things for them to eat. So, I went to a dozen places, including one of Anthony's farms just a couple miles away from here, Uh and uh, found uh, a site that had a, a conventional till right across the road in the same soil, similar soil as the, as the no-till. And so I did a paired sampling, and we sent it off for uh, what we call asymbiotic nitrogen-fixing activity. And it came back, and what, 10 out of the 12 sites the long-term no-till were way higher activity than the conventional till. So I figure that's probably about a third of our credit. Is just because we have more activity by those those things than the conventional till neighbors do. And the other is probably a nitrogen efficiency thing. And, and maybe something else I'm not considering right now.
0: In case you're wondering, the Beach Boys he referenced there, we're not the Beach Boys that sing the, the surf songs. They're the early no-till pioneers from Beach, North Dakota. Just to clarify that for you there, in case you're confused. Now this four to six years that we start to see results, this does not bring it back to the prairie levels as Dr. Franson talked about uh, in the history of fertilization in North Dakota at the top of this episode. So I wondered, you know, how long would it take to get kind of all the way back to that level or is it even possible?
1: Well, uh, to get the organic matter in the top, 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 top back to almost prairie levels, Seems like it's it takes thirty to forty years in the climate that we're at. We have a we have a, a farmer that we work with down at uh, Rutland, Joe Brecker, and some of his uh, soils, even in the side slopes, um, and he's been at it for year forty years. Um, are six and a half, and he has some that are over seven and a half percent, and that's that's probably peak, probably pretty darn close to prairie level, but it's not two feet. It's probably you know, 10 inches, something like that. So it it would take another generation probably to get it back.
0: The 65 to 7.5% that Dr. Franson is referencing there is, of course, organic matter. And the thought of it taking multiple generations to get back up to prairie levels is is uh, somewhat daunting. But I think that's a point that needs to be emphasized, is trying to build back the soil health uh, once it's gone is extremely tough and, and requires a very long time horizon. Another point I want to emphasize here is is how freely Dr. Franson is giving credit to the farmers that he works with. I mean, I think this is going to be a theme throughout this whole series is that no one person is doing all this work on their own that it's the collaborative effort between dr franson and all of the farmers he works with as well as the consultants and extension agents that's really making all of this advancement possible and those relationships built over several years are obvious when you hear them give each other a hard time
2: the the common joke was a lot of times he was out here working we didn't even know he was here because he would go through the yard in the morning before anybody was up and around, and he'd be out there all day. We wouldn't even know he's out
1: there. It's a big job. You know, it'd take four-foot samples on a quarter-acre grid, and 40 acres, it's a two-day job.
2: Never did bill NDSU for the loss of elevation in that field.
1: No, but I didn't, I won't talk about that.
2: How many tons of dirt over 10 years got between you and Dr. Hopkins got hauled back to NDSU? I, I had to, I,
1: I had to have helped your drainage though. yeah.
2: You know, Broke that jelly horizon so the water could go down.
0: I wasn't going to talk about that. <laughs> it was certainly a treat to sit in Anthony's shop and talk and laugh with him and Dr. Franson about years of working together and the amount of research that's been done and trials that have been made and iterations that have done to answer all these questions related to soil health. And I had to ask, after all of this work that's been done in Dr. Franson's career, what questions does he still have about soil fertility?
1: Yeah, so everybody thinks just because we have recommendations that we know everything there is about soil fertility, but that's absolutely not true. Um, one of the things we just found out a few years ago is that clay chemistry makes a big difference in our potassium recommendations, for example, that that um, the potassium and the different kinds of clay is important on on what the soil test level should be. Uh, and then uh, just uh, really recently, And uh, I don't know if it'll turn out to be true or not, but it's kind of along the same line. But um, we've had cover crop studies, and we've grown rye and radish and had uh, really good growth. Sometimes we've had peas or fava beans in the mix as well. Uh, And by the book, which, you know, by the book, the book often is wrong, apparently, um, if you have a low enough carbon-to-nitrogen ratio, then it should release nitrogen the next year. And it doesn't. <laughs> that You know, there's a published paper out of Wisconsin just a couple years ago that shows that's not true, and four papers in Des Moines this last year, and in a regional uh, conference we had, all the different states, they haven't seen any release. And so this is weird. Um, we know because of the weather, it's just not evaporating or leaching or going away. It's got to be there somewhere, but we can't figure out where it was. And so back in the 40s and 50s, before people started working on fertilizer, there were a lot of soil scientists that looked at what they called um, fixed ammonia. Um, ammonia fixed between the clay layers, you know, because that was the source, you know, they. The, the release of nitrogen from the breakdown of organic matter was one, but then the, also the release of, or the tie-up of nitrogen uh, by the clays was, was another. But since uh, fertilizer came in, the, that research has just kind of gone away. You know, It's just it's buried in the archives of different journals. And so I thought in our cover crop trials last fall, I went ahead and and sampled um, each individual experimental unit, each individual treatment at a couple of locations. And the one that we have, we have results back from, uh, Dr. Matthews that runs the soil lab uh, ran the, ran the uh, non-exchangeable ammonia. And um, there's more non-exchangeable ammonia where we had cover crops than where there isn't. So maybe that's where it is. You know, I don't know if that'll be consistent as we go through the study but it's uh, it's kind of exciting that um something like that's happening there's an area up by Langdon and it's divided up in our wheat recommendations if you go to our calculator if you're north of in a triangle where the where the lower point is at Devil's Lake and then it kind of spans out toward canada um there's a there's a good sized area out there that called the Langdon area and it's an area where every soil sample that you take, it has little gray pieces of flat rock in its shale. 65 million year old shale. And um, some researcher from the uh, Mandan station, USDA, years ago, did a mineralization study, a release of nitrogen from those shales, just separated out the shales. And, and it has high amounts of mineralizable nitrogen in that 65 million year old shale. And so that's why the nitrogen recommendations are lower up in that Langdon area than they are anywhere else. Is because that that shale. And and so if so, if we can get nitrogen from 65 million year old non-exchangeable ammonia, one would think that that sometime we'll be able to get some nitrogen out of those cover crops. But when and can we use that as a credit? Uh, that's the question right now. That's just one of a, like a million questions.
0: Those million questions continue to drive Dr. Franson to do what he does. But what drives Anthony to continue trying to improve his farming operation and work with researchers like Dr. Franson?
2: When Dad retired and turned the farm over to me, he turned the land over to me in much better shape than he received it. Not that the earlier generations abused the land, but because of the equipment and the way farming was done between erosion and everything else, there was damage. My goal is when I quit farming, everything is gonna be in better shape than I got it. And so that's kind of what drives me with the no-till. I'm interested in the cover crops. I'm interested in doing this stuff, putting tile in, improving what I have to pass on something of better quality than I received it in. That's that's my philosophy. Granted, I gotta make money too. <laughs> I gotta live in in between, you know, in those years. So there, there's the dual thing, but I want to improve things. I want it better. I want it stronger, more efficient, and all of that. And that's kind of my goal. Sometimes I, people think I go at it backwards, but it, it, so far it's worked. So...
0: I'd say it's working pretty well. Big thank you to Anthony Tillamone and Dr. Dave Franson for taking time to have this conversation about soil fertility, both in science and in practice. I hope you got a lot of fascinating insights out of that. And I know I did. Make sure you're subscribed because next week we'll be back with another episode with Dr. Franson and Anthony talking more on the precision agriculture side. Some really, really interesting stuff there as well. So if you're not subscribed, please do so. And if you use iTunes, would love an iTunes rating and review for the Soil Sense podcast to get the word out. We're brand new at this so we want to make sure that other people know this is very interesting and enlightening content related to soil health would really appreciate the rating and review there also for more information about everything you heard here you can go to the website www.ndsoilsense.com special thank you to the north dakota corn council and the north dakota soybean council for making this series possible we'll be back next week with more soil sense Hey, I hope you found that valuable, and if you did, please uh, head over and subscribe to the Soil Sense podcast. We're going to do at least 15 episodes in this first series about the farmers, researchers, consultants, and extension that are working on soil health in North Dakota. Um, Anyway, we'll be back next week with your regularly scheduled program of an ag innovator on this Future of Agriculture podcast.